first, uh, I'm sure you all are aware that uh, we're in the middle of flu season. And, uh, you know, I'm just making a comment. It's, it's been a beautiful thing to see the body at work because every weekend, some people who've been scheduled to serve on the worship team have had to drop out, and the rest of the body has said, we'll fill in, we'll serve. And it's been very cool to see that. So I just praise God to, to be a part of that. And it's, it's neat to see. Well, you know, if you've been paying attention to popular culture and just trends, if you notice there's been a popular uh, trend towards finding out one's ancestry or one's genetic origins, right? Things like companies like uh, Ancestry.com or they're running commercials even in primetime uh, television spots to, you know, say, hey, come and find out where you're from, your ancestors, and what's your genetic makeup to find out this information. It's, it's a fascinating thing to know your family's background and, and history, to know where you came from genetically and geographically, and perhaps to know something about the story of your family, your forefathers, your mother, forefathers as well, and perhaps there's some certain things about your tribe your clan, your people that bring to bear certain habits or certain characteristics, even maybe even certain privileges, if you will, especially if you might come from royalty. Now, I don't know that any of us in this room do, but say if you were a Saudi prince or princess, that you, know, you would have the privilege of, of getting a monthly stipend and other privileges from the coffers of that oil-rich um, nation that are not common to just the everyday Saudi uh, citizen. But today we're looking at part two of what I call looking at Jesus' credentials. See, Jesus in the story of Luke, or in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to turn your Bibles there, is about ready to launch into his public ministry. And he's getting ready, but we're looking at what does it take to be the Messiah? To be the savior of the world, to be the, the mediator, the reconciler between holy God and mankind, sinful mankind made in his image. Well, it takes, it takes two natures. It takes two natures. And last week we looked at Jesus' divine nature, which we've seen in the Gospel of Luke as he was virgin born, but at his baptism, it is affirmed by all three parts, all three persons of the Godhead, Jesus, the Son, who identifies with repentant sinners to trust God in baptism, that they might ultimately identify with Him and His righteousness and have their sin reconciled to God. The Spirit of God descends physically like a dove, visibly, and rests on Jesus. And then the Father, with a voice, says, You are my beloved Son, in who I am well pleased. So last week we're looking at Jesus' divine origins. This week we're looking at his human credentials. Where did he derive any human heritage or privilege to be the Messiah? And along the way we'll see God's faithfulness not only to a person, to a nation, but the whole human race. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let me pray and then we'll be in the third chapter of Luke today. So Lord Jesus, indeed, you are the Lion of Judah. You were born into that tribe. And we'll see even more about who you were in your human credentials, how you entered history 
And it is an amazing thing. But would you open our eyes today as we look at a passage that oftentimes we neglect, but your hand, your fingerprints are all over it in your faithfulness. So again, I I ask, as I ask every week, would you open the eyes of our hearts so we might see you for who who you truly are, give us grace to respond to you in spirit and in truth, and that we might worship you, serve you, and love you with our lives. And Lord, if someone doesn't know you today, I pray you would draw them to yourself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Luke, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Hang on to your hats. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janae, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of uh, Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jo. Uh, Jon- Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the, the son of Elamadam, the son of Ur, the son of jo- Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melaiah, the son of Mena, the son of Matiata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arxaphad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemek, the son of Methuselah, the son of, of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now some say that reading a genealogy or preaching on a geology, you know, genealogy is like watching paint dry. Not very interesting. A lot of names of ancient dead guys. But don't be overwhelmed by these 77 names, 78 if you include God's name. There is a point and a purpose to this being in God's Scripture. It it is His Word, and there are hidden, hidden treasures here for us to find. And remember, this is Jesus about ready to launch into His public ministry. We're looking at His messianic credentials. And that's what, Jesus, that's what Luke is wanting to highlight today. But the first point I want to point out, this is kind of a side point, but it's still important. Number one, that Jesus enters into public service at the right time. Look at verse 23. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Luke, of all the Gospels, has the most information about Jesus' early life, his birth his boyhood, 
And now he is growing up. And at the end of chapter 2, verse 52, it says this, He grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God. He grew up. Now, there's no scripture that says you have to be 30 to enter the ministry in public service, save for the priesthood. But Jesus, in his 20s, was probably quite capable. But 30, 30 is the acceptable age for public service in Jewish society, highlighted by a few patriarchs. Joseph, the son of Jacob, becomes vice pharaoh at the age of 30 in Genesis 41 46. The priests, and this is commanded in Scripture, you could not do your priestly duties until you were 30, and then you go to age 50, and then you were in retirement. Or you could kind of help, but you were no longer uh, on the A-list, if you will, for the priesthood. David himself becomes king at the age of 30. And the prophet Ezekiel is called to be God's spokesman, his prophet, at the age of 30 in Ezekiel 1.1. Jesus may have done just fine at the age of 20, coming and being the Messiah, if you will. But let's face it, Jesus' ministry was a radical message that was different than Judaism of the day. And if he, if he entered into that ministry at the age of 20, it quite possibly could have been just regarded as him being immature. So this is God's timing. Uh, Jesus is trying to keep in step with the Father, so he enters the ministry. He's baptized at age 30 that he might identify with us. But here's the thing also as we go into this genealogy. Jesus was born into the right family. You see, in many, in many societies, in, in Jewish society, what tribe you were born into gives you certain rights. It has to do with the transfer of land, right? If you've read the, the, the story of Ruth, there's a man named Boaz. And he's able to redeem the land for Naomi and Ruth because he is a kinsman redeemer. Someone else had the first shot at it, but he passed on that and then Boaz was next in line. He could both redeem the land and he could redeem Naomi and Ruth themselves because he was in the same tribe. Also, only the Levites could serve in the tabernacle and the temple. And only the sons of Aaron, if you drill things down smaller in the tribe of Levi, could serve as the priests. We see that in Exodus 28. In fact, after the exile to Babylon, when people come back, people had to prove their ancestry so that they could continue in the priesthood. And some people had to wait until that was determined. We see that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 61 through 63. But somewhere along the way, in salvation history, God calls a man who's after his own heart to be the king. And he makes a promise. He makes a covenant to that king. And his name is David. And let me read that covenant to you just shortly. This is Second Samuel verses seven, chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring 
to, su- to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men and the floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Eventually, in the land of Israel, it was established that really only a descendant of David could be the king. Only a descendant of David could be the Messiah. You know, we understand that actually quite well here in our own society, in America, in our Constitution, right? Only a citizen born in the United States can be president. We understand that. Even so, only a descendant of David could be the Messiah. That was well established by the time Jesus comes onto the scene in the first century. In fact, Jesus asks the questions of, of his challengers. Hey, let's talk about the Messiah. Whose son is he? He says in Matthew 22, verses 41 and 42. Or you can read about it also in Luke 20, 41 through 44. And the answer is he's David's son. Only David's son could sit on the throne. And in the, the royal succession, 20 men sat on that throne. Some good, some not so good, some faithful, some not so faithful, some godly, some scoundrels. And the last king who would be conquered in 586 B.C., he would be exiled to Babylon, and then they would return. They would return 70 years later. And various people would rule. The Medes and the Persians, Alexander the Great, and his, his generals, the Seleucids, the Maccabees, Herod, and now Rome. And the hope of the people is that somehow God would raise up a descendant of David to come and kick out the Romans. And we, he would reign and rule again. But they come back 70 years later out of, out of exile. And this is now probably 470 years later, they come back and their genealogies are intact. People know where they came from. People know where they came from. Now here's what I want to point out. In the scripture there are two genealogies of Jesus. The first one is found in Matthew. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Here's the one we have in Luke. At first glance at these genealogies, they seem to be the genealogies of Joseph, David's, I mean, Jesus' adopted father. And it says, again, in verse 23, talking about Jesus, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. In Luke, Joseph's father appears to be a man named Eli, or Heli. In Matthew, his father tends, is a name, man named Jacob. Now, what do we do with this information? How does that work? There are two genealogies here. What is the difference? 
If you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to drill down to this because it really points to what this genealogy in Luke is trying to point to. See, there's differences, first of all, <clears throat> in order. In Matthew, it's from the past, starting from Abraham, to the present. In Luke, it's from the present to the past, all the way back to Adam. And then there's just, <clears throat> just the number of names. Matthew puts it together in four groups of 14. Actually, David is repeated twice, so actually there are only 41 names. Luke here, there are 77 names, seven sets of 11. But here's the truth. Some names along the way are omitted. Some names are omitted along the way. So son of can mean, you know, actual next generation son. But son of also can also mean someone who is my ancestor. In the beginning of, of Matthew starts out, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so obviously there are a few generations that were skipped here, right? But there's also the length. <laughs> Matthew's is from Abraham to Jesus. Luke's is from Jesus all the way back to Adam. See, Matthew is addressing the question. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah who keeps the law. And he's descended from Abraham, the one who God called out. Whereas Luke, he's, he's addressing Gentiles. Gentiles who need to know that God has reached out to the nations. God, who is a Savior of all mankind. He's a descendant all the way back to Adam. And Jesus himself is the second Adam. And we'll see that next week. What is the same between these two genealogies? Of the group of names between Abraham all the way to David. But here's where the major difference is. When you get to David, everything after that, the names are completely different except for two names, which I think honestly are two different groups of people with the same name. We can talk about that some other time. But in Matthew, Matthew tracks the monarchy. It goes from David to Solomon and all of his sons and all of the kings of Judah. You see, Joseph is in the bloodline, the royal bloodline of, of David. Joseph is the legal heir of the throne of David. All of Joe's ancestors were kings of Judah to the end. And you get to this one name in, in Matthew chapter 11, chapter 1 verse 11. A man named Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin. And he only reigns three months, and he's taken into exile, alive, in Babylon, and he lives the rest of his days there. But his is the only line of the kings that survives. Everyone else, all, they, all, the, all the kings and their sons, die in exile. And he has a son named Sheltiel, who has a son named Zerubbabel, who after the 70 years of exile will come back to, to Jerusalem and help set the foundations for the temple. But here's the thing. He never returns to the throne. He never returns to the throne. Because for some reason, I don't know who Jeconiah was or who Jehoiachin was, but he must have been a bit of a scoundrel because God curses him. 
And this is the curse in Jeremiah 22, 28 through 30. This man, Jehoiachin, a despised and broken pot, an object no one wants, why will he be, why will he and his children be hurled out and cast into the land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper, none will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Wow. That's a pretty sobering statement. So how to theologically, how does God deal with this? If the royal offspring can't sit on David's throne, we're stuck. How does the Messiah come into place? How's God going to overcome this issue? It's Luke's genealogy. You see, after David, the lineage doesn't go through Solomon. Solomon has a brother named Nathan. Whoop, whoop. That's right. He is Bathsheba's third son, a son of David, and Nathan's line does not go through Jehoiachin. But he is in the bloodline of David, a descendant from his body. And in truth, in truth, what I think we have here in Luke is Mary's genealogy, not Joseph's. Mary's genealogy. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? The text seems to say the opposite. I'm just going to make a quick case if I can for this, all right? So bear with me. First of all, in this sentence here, in verse 23, talking about Jesus, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. We already know that Jesus was virgin born. He was not the blood relative of Joseph. And Joseph, not being his father... The Greek does not next say, and Joseph was the son of Eli or Heli. Just, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's, I think it's kind of a parenthetical statement where it just kind of isolates Joseph as it was thought that he was the son, uh, he was the father. Jesus was the son of Joseph. But then it goes on to Use the definite article. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, just listen. This is how it would translate. So it would be, Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, but that of Heli, who was that of Matat, that of Levi, that of, of Melchi. You see, Joseph is kind of isolated there, and he goes from Jesus to his maternal grandfather whose name is Eli or Heli. Second of all, just the whole context of the first three chapters of, of um, Luke, it's all from Mary's perspective. It's all about Mary. She's the one who hides these things in her heart. She's the one who tells about Jesus who got left in the temple. Joseph is just kind of in the background. Third of all, just this, this thing that is, is said by Gabriel and he's talking very literally, chapter 1, verse 32, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. This is before Mary and Joseph have come together. Mary is a blood relative of 
David. And then Jesus, I mean, then God's promise to David, I will raise up for, up from your offspring to succeed your own flesh and blood. He's very specific. Also, just this is affirmed by the early church. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Regarding his son, talking about Jesus, who, as to his earthly nature, or according to the flesh, was a descendant of David, or of the seed of David. It's very, very specific. Also, one other thing I want to point out. Jesus was a bit of a controversial character, wasn't he? You know what? If Jesus were not indeed a blood relative of David, because the genealogy records were out there for everyone to see, they would have brought this up. They They wouldn't have let this go. They would have brought that out. Certainly they would have brought that up as a matter of contention. You can't be the Messiah because you're not a blood relative of David. And last of all, this is a unique event. I mean, how do you record a virgin birth in a genealogy, which typically includes men's names? So Luke goes from Joseph, I mean, from Jesus, all the way over to Eli, his maternal grandfather. Ironically, ironically, you know the one who mentions the women? It's Matthew. And they're all scandalous women. They're all scandalous women. You've got Tamar, who has an <laughs> illicit relationship with her father-in-law, Judah. You've got, okay, now I'm working here. Rahab, thank you. The women knew this one. Rahab, the harlot, right? And then you've got Ruth, who is, a, who is uh, from Moab. Thank you. All right. Someone else please pre- <laughs> preach this sermon. But you know why I think that's there? Because in the midst of the law, there is grace. In the midst of the law, there is grace. And I think Matthew's trying to illustrate that. But let's get back to the main point. Between these two genealogies, right? Jesus is the legal father to, to David's throne through the line of Solomon as Joseph's adopted son. That's Matthew's genealogy. Jesus is the blood relative of of David, and he escapes the curse of Jehoiachin, and he physically is able to fulfill that role as Messiah through the bloodline of Nathan. That is Luke's genealogy. Now let me say this. This does not diminish at all the names that follow after David. God made some pretty significant promises to Judah, to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham, to Shem, to Noah, and our forefathers, Adam and Eve, to have a son, a descendant, whose heel would be bruised, but who would crush the serpent's head. And there are many times in salvation history that this seemed to be threatened. This seemed to be impossible. This seemed to be being put out of existence. But God protects it and takes care of it. It says, no, I am going to be faithful to my promise. I love this quote, and I don't even know who this gentleman is. It was just on the side of my Bible, but it says this. God is a God of promise. And he keeps his word even when what seems impossible. Even when circumstances seem to point to the opposite. My friends, God is the same God 
but we serve that he made promises to David. And he's going to be faithful to bring those to fruition in our lives. You see, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he enters into our broken genealogy. He enters into our brokenness to make good the salvation promises of God. And he comes to identify with us, not to be infected by sin, but to break the chains that we cannot break ourselves. And it's not lost on me that this genealogy goes all the way down to Adam. Because Adam dropped the ball. Adam failed. But Jesus comes to live the life that Adam could not, nor can we. To pay the debt that Adam couldn't pay, nor could we. To come and restore us to God. Because Adam couldn't and we couldn't. He is our perfect Savior because he has the perfect credentials. Both God and man. And he came on a mission to seek and save the lost that he might restore us to himself. And as the old hymn says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And so now we're going to enter into a time of celebrating exactly what he did to buy us back to God. To remember that he did 